Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, in an exclusive interview for SITREP, following the publication of the Defence Review, the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, says it's important to embrace change. So I don't think it's a moment of revolution, but I do think it's a moment when we're looking to the future and recognising that we are in an ever-evolving moment of change, which if we don't embrace that change, uh, there is a real risk that we'll get left behind. So I think it is a recognition that we're in a different place. General Carter discusses a wide range of issues in the interview, from army numbers and the future of the reserve force, to new technologies and the nature of the threats the UK faces. Also on today's programme, the campaign to encourage people to access MOD land for leisure only when it's safe to do so. As a civilian now, just walk straight across here, seeing what we're doing, and just walking straight across um, off the footpath through the woods, interrupting the, the training. And that is happening time and time again. And what is the MOD's new strategy for climate change and sustainability? We have a report. But first, it's been described as the most important defence review since the end of the Cold War. The last two weeks have seen a blueprint for the future of the armed forces. First, the integrated review highlighted the nature and scale of the threats facing the UK. Then, last week, the Defence Command paper set out the future shape of defence. Funding increased, new technologies on their way... But the size of the regular army reduced over four years to 72,500 troops from its current target of 82,000. The Prime Minister said there would be no redundancies. Well, earlier I spoke to General Sir Nick Carter, the Chief of the Defence Staff, and asked him whether he knew yet where the reduction in army numbers would come from. No, it's being planned at the moment uh, by the army. It's going to require a bit of restructuring, obviously. It's restructuring that is going to make them better able to deal with the challenges of this era of constant competition that we're in. And I think that that will take a while to work through. But I think what's encouraging about it is that they will be much better structured to be able to be um, used regularly. Um, And if you're looking, I think, for an opportunity for um, people to enjoy themselves these days, uh, something to market our recruiting against, those sorts of things, I think that A lot of people um, over the last five years would very much have said that um, it's good to be used, it's good to be training, it's good to be exercising, it's good to be overseas. And I think what the Integrated Reviewers heralded and the Defence Command paper that has followed is the opportunity for the army to be more in use. So I think it'll be a very attractive army to belong to. And how are you going to make the reserve force more productive? What investment is going to be made in the reserves? Well, of course, um, there's been an independent review of the reserves. You'll remember if you hark back to 2011 and 12, there was something called Future Reserves 2020. Um, What was launched last year uh, under the leadership of Mark Lancaster, Lord Lancaster, uh, formerly MinAF, was something called Reserve Forces 2030. And he's written a report um, which has been received, uh, but not yet published, uh, and the government will need to respond to it. But what it is suggesting in principle is a reserve that will be more productive uh, than what we've had in the past. It will be a reserve that will be very much part of a a whole force look at uh, all of our armed forces. So it will be properly integrated into uh, all of that. It will very much have roles that will be associated with resilience. And we've learnt the importance of that during uh, the Covid crisis, of course. 
Um, but it'll also pick up roles that it's not done in the past because we genuinely believe that some of the resilience we need for war fighting in the future can be found in the reserve. And there are many tasks that the reserve can perform to do that. Um, so it will be, um, it'll be an exciting thing to join. It'll be very much um, designed into um, our integrated force structure. You know, it won't be the sort of reserves um, dappled on top. Uh, it'll actually be about them being properly integrated uh, as part of our structure. Um, and I think it's a, an exciting proposition uh, and it'll provide, I think, opportunity for lateral movement, opportunity for career structures to be thought about differently. And I think it'll be um, an exciting uh, element of um, what, what occurs over the future. And on the subject of the Rangers, what's the difference in scope between the new Rangers regiment that's been announced and the parachute regiment or the, the Marines? Um, so, um, you, you'll recall about three or four years ago that, uh, in fact, when I was head of the army, we created things called specialised infantry battalions. And the idea behind them is that they would uh, do training, advice and assistance to local forces um, in Africa or Asia or wherever else it might be. Um, and they have, would become um, expert in the sort of relevant culture and locality where they were performing their tasks. What we've now decided is that that's a, an, an important function that will continue to be performed. But on top of that, what we need are um, similar organisations, but which will be special forces, um, which will be able to go beyond train advice and assistance to actually accompany these local forces on operations. And that means they will be uh, very well equipped, uh, they will be very well trained, and of course will have been selected for their roles. I think the roles ultimately will be open to uh, anybody uh, in the armed forces and certainly in the army. Um, and their function will be very similar to uh, US Green Berries, um, who have over years uh, provided that sort of uh, capability. Now, when you're talking about um, the Marines and the Parachute Regiment, um, they are not special forces, they're very high-end conventional forces. And of course, what they will do is to continue to provide their uh, traditional role, uh, either in terms of literal manoeuvre, as we call it, with Royal Marines, and the raiding associated with it, which is where the future commando force is going, um, or in the case of um, the Parachute Regiment as part of 16 Air Assault Brigade, you know, they are our uh, capability to be able to do air manoeuvre and, for that matter, um, air assault uh, if, if necessary. So they are high-end conventional forces. They're not technically special forces, which is what these rangers will be once we've raised them. Mm. The former commander of Joint Forces Command General, Sir Richard Barons, told us last week he supported the direction of travel but said big cuts should be delayed until we were clear about the new capability we're going to introduce, that mixture of manned, unmanned and autonomous capability, which he said is barely even in development yet. What's your response to that? Um, well, I think a number of observations, really. Um, I mean, I have a great deal of respect for... Richard Barons and you know he and I are partners in crime often when we talk about technology and the future battlefield and everything associated with it. I mean the, the straightforward answer is that there are finite resources um, and where I think we're very fortunate on this particular occasion is for the first time in my career we have a clear understanding of the ends as in what the Prime Minister announced two weeks ago with the integrated review. We have a pretty clear understanding of the ways uh, which are integrated operating concept which describes how modern deterrence will be affected in this era of constant competition and importantly we have the means uh, with a generous settlement in the spending review last November. Now if you those three things are 
you know, more or less in balance, which is a very unusual position for us to be in. Because normally what happens is that, you know, within weeks of a defence review being announced, the Public's Accounts Committee will be arguing that there's a black hole that needs to be filled and so on and so forth. And on this particular occasion, given the decisions that have been taken, which have been made in confident knowledge that we have a multi-year settlement, and indeed for defence it means £188 over four years, which is an increase in £24 over four years, that means that we have the confidence to be able to take some tough decisions now to make sure that there are no black holes, that the programme is in balance, and that that means we can take decisions to work out what we are going to bring into service in due course to modernise ourselves. Now, some of that is going to be cutting-edge stuff. Some of it may well require experimentation and research and development to deliver it. But the key thing is that we can plan with confidence that we've got balanced books. And that's a position I can't recall before. Now, in terms of some of the capabilities, I mean, I was talking to IISS about this very subject. And if you look at the Air Force, for example, you know, their current tactical force package is probably eight typhoons. You know, they believe that it is tangible, maybe by 2030, that they would have a force package that would have two typhoon, 10 mosquito uh, uncrewed uh, airframes, and what they're calling 100 Alvina um, drones that would fly alongside these things. Now, we know very well that those technologies are available to us now. So I think in the air domain, it's very easy to chart that future. Uh, I think it's more challenging in the land domain, uh, where I think um, the extent to which robotics and automation are making a big difference is probably slightly further away. But broadly speaking, I think we can be confident that these sorts of technologies are increasingly available. And given the exponential um, change that we're under at the moment, I think it's a perfectly reasonable horse to back, recognising that an army of 72,500 could probably deal with the sorts of threats that we're talking about envisaging in the next 10 years, particularly in partnership with our allies and with a much more productive reserve. Mm, on that note, are we therefore not envisaging a campaign the likes we saw in Afghanistan with the troop numbers we saw there and in Iraq? I mean, again, I think, you know, uh, people have learnt a lot of lessons from our entanglements in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think the big question that we need to ask ourselves is, what are the lessons from that? And will we want to do it like that again? And I think that, you know, in looking forwards, what we're trying to achieve through specialised infantry battalions, through ranger battalions, through a much improved defence attaché network, is if we can get upstream and generally upstream and generally understand the context before we get involved in it, there's a reasonable chance perhaps that we can make a difference in front of it rather than behind it. So I think that that's an important consideration. Uh, and indeed, uh, I often quote somebody called Antonio Gustozzi, who said of the campaigns of the first 20 years or so of this century, he said every age has its follies. The folly of our age has been an irresistible desire to change the world without first studying and understanding it. And I think, you know, we as military professionals need to look forwards, not backwards. The plain fact is that if we wanted to do an enduring operation um, with a combination of a reserve being mobilised and all the other things associated with it, we could probably do it. But I think there's a big question mark about whether we'd want to do it like that in the future. And finally, uh, to sum up, how big a moment is this for the future shape and purpose of the armed forces? I mean, I think, and I've often said it, that we are now moving from an industrial age of platforms to an information age of systems. Now, the answer is that this isn't, I don't think, a revolution. It's going to be a very rapid evolution. 
And therefore, to use the term, we'll want to hang on to some of our uh, traditional capabilities um, as we advance towards the digital age, uh, because it won't happen overnight. But the trick is to do it in a fashion where you try and keep one foot on the ground as you take your steps forward. So it's about getting the balance right. So I don't think it's a moment of revolution, but I do think it's a moment when we're looking to the future and recognising that we are in an ever-evolving moment of change, which if we don't embrace that change, uh, there is a real risk that we'll get left behind. So I think it is a recognition that we're in a different place, uh, but we're particularly in a different place when it comes to the requirement for a strategic culture that can deal with an era of constant competition. Now, the last 20 years have been relatively straightforward in that we've been focused on counterterrorism and everything associated with that. The 10 years before that, it was a unipolar world where peacekeeping was relevant, to, of course. And before that, of course, it was the Cold War. You know, we haven't been involved in great power competition for some time. Um, and I think that that requires us to reflect pretty deeply on this being a, a moment of transition. General Carter speaking to me earlier and more on that interview later. The Defence Infrastructure Organisation has created a campaign called Respect the Range to encourage people to access MOD land for leisure and recreational purposes only when and where it's safe to do so. Amy Wiltshire reports. If you're a keen walker, there's a good chance that you've walked on land owned by the MOD. Used for training troops all over the UK and overseas, near countryside and coastal areas, the ranges make a great place to explore. However, in recent years, more and more people are putting themselves at risk, going onto the land while the military are carrying out training. As a result, the Defence Infrastructure Organisation, part of the MOD, have launched a new campaign aimed to make people more aware of what to look out for. In a split second, it can change into all-out war fighting. The focus of this campaign is based on Salisbury Plain and Aldershot at the moment, but will be rolled out to further training areas. Across both, safety measures such as drones and more staff had been put in place, but more needed to be done. Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Mayo is Chief of Staff for the Defence Infrastructure Organisation. We've had numerous uh, reports from military units of civilians walking through their training. Um, only behind me, about 50 metres away, I've got a group of soldiers doing some very basic field craft skills. And as a civilian now, just walk straight across here, seeing what we're doing, and just walking straight across um, off the footpath through the woods, interrupting the, the training. And that is happening time and time again. And to be honest, the soldiers are just fed up to the back teeth with having to ask civilians politely not to interfere with their training. There's a military training team based over here. Thank you. Just stay on the track, please. Especially over COVID-19, there's been an increase in people accessing the training area. Many of them have come from outside the local vicinity. So they don't know that training takes place on the training area they just see it as a park as somewhere that they can go and walk and exercise they don't understand what happens here so um, what we're trying to do is to inform the general public that it, this is a shared space um, it's a training area so it's dangerous but you can go on it on a public footpath a public right of way or a bride away Fernstone Street walks on the training area regularly with friends, especially in the last year, and believes it's important to respect the training areas by ensuring you know when and where it's safe to walk. 
at the end of the day, this is military land and it's a privilege for us to be able to come and use it and share it with them. But it is a privilege that I guess could be withdrawn if we start messing about with military operations, wasting their time or putting ourselves or them in any danger. The DIO hope that with this campaign the public will be more aware of the do's and don'ts and the military will be able to carry out their training in the future with very little or no interruption. We would just like everyone to be safe and to respect the range. Amy Wiltshire reporting there. The way the UK responds to China has become one of the defining themes of the last few years. Lord Ricketts was the National Security Advisor from 2010 to 2012 and the Ambassador to Paris until 2016. He took part in a discussion at the defence think tank RUSI this week on the Integrated Review of Defence and Foreign Policy. I asked him first whether the government had got the balance right on China. I think it was probably one of the most difficult parts of the review because there is all sorts of pressure on the government to toughen their position on China, coming from Washington, including the new Biden administration, also from uh, parts of the Conservative Party. And China itself is making it very hard to maintain a balanced relationship with the very aggressive position they've taken on Hong Kong and and the Uyghur people. Um, So we have, of course, to be very vigilant on security with China. But also Britain outside the EU needs China as the huge growing market And it needs China if we're going to get anywhere on issues like climate change, where Britain is holding the big global conference at the end of the year. So the review makes a big effort, I think, to try to find a position which is both tough on security, but also open to wider cooperation. Question is, can we sustain that, given all the pressures? Yes, because the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, has said we will never yield, we will never give up standing up for our values, he said. He talks about a calibrated approach to dealing with Beijing, balancing this desire for trade with the growing superpower against a need to stand up for human rights. I mean, is it possible to do both? Well, it is possible. Uh, I think it's in China's interests as well to um, remain active and influential on issues like climate change for their own public opinion, apart from anything else. Um, and I, but I think it's a, it's a difficult balancing act because we're trying to effectively insulate the commercial relationship and the relationship with China as a wider global player from the pressures on human rights and political differences, which are more and more acute. I don't know whether we can sustain that, but I think it's worth trying. And what do you think the purpose is of the so-called tilt to the Indo-Pacific with the carrier group due there this year? The interesting thing about that for me is that the advance hype before the integrated review was published made much more of this Indo-Pacific tilt. And actually, the document does itself. I mean, when you read it carefully, a lot of the stress is on Britain's role in Europe as the leading European ally in NATO. And yes, it does talk about more engagement in the Indo-Pacific. It is the fastest growing region in the world, um, and it is probably the most acute security risk in the world of the coming decade. But it doesn't really suggest a wholesale shift of our foreign policy towards the Indo-Pacific. I personally think that's right. We're only ever going to be a secondary player economically and in security terms in the Indo-Pacific. And actually, the document is quite measured about that when you come to read it carefully. If we could move on to Russia, though, which the review calls a a direct threat to the UK, NATO fighter jets were scrambled 10 times on Monday to shadow Russian bombers and fighters during an unusual peak of flights near NATO airspace. Uh, Why? I think Russia feels defensive 
uh, it feels insecure, uh, it feels that it's not being taken seriously as a major country. I mean, their behavior makes it very hard to take them seriously. And so I think these are uh, gestures to draw attention to Russia's military strength at a time of real economic weakness and where it's doing badly in coping with the pandemic uh, and with the new Biden administration, I think, taking a tough line on Russia. So uh, I mean, it's, a, it's a kind of plea for attention, I think, as much as anything else. But it, I think it also underlines why the integrated review is right to put the emphasis on European security at the heart of British foreign and defense policy and Russia as a real adversary. For whatever reason, the Russians have decided the West is their adversary and we have to respond to that. Peter Ricketts there. Well, joining me now is Professor Michael Clark, the former director of RUSI. Uh, Michael, let's start with General Carter's interview. What stood out for you? Uh, I think the, the thing that I was most interested in in what he said was the degree of financial certainty that the MOD has for the next four years. I mean, Ben Wallace is quite right that he's the only minister to have got a four-year settlement across all of Whitehall for all sorts of reasons that we understand. And so what the CDS was saying is, look, you know, we can start this process. Of course, it will take a lot more than four years, and we, we need to make sure that funding is still there in years six, seven, and eight. But at least we can get moving with some certainty. And, you know, he was saying that, that we will have to take some risks. We'll experiment. Not everything will work. But there's the, there is that sense of, as it were, bullish confidence that they can get on with it. They, they do have a vision. The, the MOD's vision is pretty clear, actually. I mean, you may disagree with where it's going, but they know where they're trying to get to. And the Navy knows pretty well what it's going to look like by 2030. He was interesting in, in the, he talked about the RAF. I mean, the RAF has got quite a long way to go, but it knows what it needs to look like by 2030 with, you know, a small number of crewed aircraft um, and then a lot of uncrewed drones that will fly with it. And that would be a pretty powerful air group. The, the, the service with, with the least certainty is the army because they've got a very long way to go and it isn't quite clear yet what sort of systems they're actually going to deploy. But as he said there, I mean, you know, the army's got some big restructuring to do to create this new uh, special operations brigade and the special forces assistance brigade. All of these things are really big initiatives. And so the army's got a lot of work to do in the next 10 years. Mm, and more details on recruitment for the new rangers force. Yes. Um, as he said, I mean, this comes off the back of these special infantry units that were created a couple of years ago. So the Rangers force we now know is going to be made up of, of contingents of the of four battalions. That's one Scots, uh, two uh, PWRR, that's the uh, Princess of Wales Royal Regiment. Um, two Lancs, the Duke of Lancasters, and four rifles. So one Scots, two PWRR, two Lancs, four rifles. And around 250 of those battalions, which is only a, a, you know, less than half of the existing battalion, will be specially trained up to make up this thousand-strong Ranger regiment. And they will, as he said, they'll be doing sort of Green Beret work, um, uh, of the sort that the Americans uh, do. And that will be pretty exciting and rather dangerous stuff. So for anyone who's after adventure, those are the, mm -hmm. those are the regiments to get into at the moment. And do you agree with Lord Ricketts that the so-called tilt to the Indo-Pacific in the review was not as marked as some people were suggesting beforehand? Yes. I, and you know, there was a big difference, I think, between the, the overall strategy document that was launched, what, three weeks ago now, and then the defence document that was, was uh, launched two weeks ago. 
um, because the defense, the MOD's document said far less about the Indo-Pacific than, if you like, Downing Street or the Cabinet Office's document. There was a, a big difference in, in emphasis there. And in, in, I mean, what I have heard in MOD is people saying, look, we agree that we have to address the China issue. But from our point of view, the playing field against China is not the Indo-Pacific, it's, it's the Middle East and Africa. If we compete with China, which we're probably going to have to do, the playing fields are not the Indo-Pacific. They're much nearer to home, and that's what we're prepared to do. And as Peter Ricketts said, you know, China can't be ignored. It's a big player in world politics. We need China's help on all sorts of global issues, not least climate change. So we're going to have to have a very careful relationship with China, which doesn't mean being bullied by the Chinese or not speaking up for human rights in Xinjiang or Hong Kong. But it does mean that we've got to actually play a much more subtle diplomatic game. And for the MOD, insofar as that means a military game, it doesn't really mean the Indo-Pacific. It means the Middle East and Africa. Michael Clark, stay with us. Now, this week, the MOD unveiled its new strategy for climate change and sustainability. Our reporter, Simon Newton, has been looking at the document and joins me now. Uh, Simon, uh, climate change is obviously an issue that affects all of us, but why does it matter so much to defence? Well, in short, because it's going to shape the way the forces operate in the future and really what they're asked to do. They'll be sent to deal with more weather-related emergencies around the world. And at the same time, of course, they've got to go green. So defence produces around half of all the government's carbon emissions. And of course, the UK set this target of being carbon neutral by 2050. Now, this review has been led by Lieutenant General Richard Nugie, who's the MOD's lead on climate change and sustainability. He told me defence really has to adapt. So our technology needs to appreciate that actually a revolution is happening, a green transit or a transition is happening in the world away from fossil fuels towards other types of energy, uh, whether it's um, a battery, hydrogen, ammonia. There are lots and lots of different contenders out there at the moment to replace fossil fuels. And we need to grasp that and use it to our advantage. It's not a zero sum game. It's not either you're green or you're capable. I'm absolutely sure that if we embrace these new technologies, then actually we'll have a more capable military and more capable armed forces. OK, Simon, so what is the military going to do to become more green? Well, we're likely to see more water purification plants, for instance, at bases, more solar, more electric vehicles like the Jackal and Foxhound, which are under development. Uh, by 2040, half the UK's F-35s will run on biofuels. And the Royal Navy's new Type 26 and Type 32 frigates, well, they will have, we're told, possibly hardened hulls so they can navigate the softening uh, Arctic ice caps more easily. The General says defence needs to become what he calls a fast follower, but essentially cherry-picking the best new technology and quickly adapting it for military use. We should not be, um, in my view, spending um, MOD money, um, spending defence dollars, so to speak, on how the world's maritime uh, shipping, which is um, over 90% of the world's trade, as I understand it, goes through shipping. We shouldn't be determining and we shouldn't be putting a huge amount of money into what is going to drive big um, container ships like we saw in the Suez, um, what sort of fuel is going to drive that? The maritime industry is going to do that. They have to do that. And they're spending billions on trying to find the right fuel for those sorts of um, tankers and, and, and so on. But the moment that a decision is taken, whether it's um, uh, ammonia, whether it's a hydrogen fuel cell, whether it's sail, whatever is, is, is deemed to be the most sensible approach by the maritime industry, we should be jumping on immediately for our ships. So what's the timescale on this move to a greener military? 
So the general says he's confident uh, the armed forces can hit this net zero target well before 2050. He wants to see 40% of the power to UK operating bases, for instance, come from renewables as soon as possible. And he lays out this roadmap for how that transition will happen, what he calls epochs, uh, with this period of 2026 to 2035 being when the big changes on fuels, carbon capture and things like electric vehicles are really going to kick in. Simon Newton, thank you. Uh, Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Uh, Michael, how important is it that the military get this right? Oh, it's really quite important because the uh, the defence estate in, in itself, just the amount of land that the MOD owns, is pretty considerable. It's second only to the, the royal estate, in effect. Um, and so the MOD will certainly attract some pretty bad headlines if it, if it isn't seen to use its land in a more eco-friendly way, and it's certainly got big plans to do that. And then, of course, in the way the forces themselves operate. And, you know, uh, Richard Nugent was very clear about this. He said, you know, there, it is not a toss-up between environmentally friendly tanks and effective tanks. He said, you know, if you're looking at, at armoured vehicles or any vehicles or military platforms in the future, they will be more efficient eventually if they're also greener so he said it isn't an either or it's a question of getting being part of this new revolution which uh, as Simon said he sees happening in, over the next 10 or 15 years. So it has real implications for the way the military operate? Yes and they're, they're taking on some pretty big targets now whether we'll stick with it or not we'll see we'll see how how difficult our economic circumstances are in the next 10 years but the intention is really there the British forces won't just be effective they will also be green and effective. Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time. And that's it from me, Kate Jabot, and all of my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 